Good morning. I'm Pam Benton, longtime member at Christ Prez. Love this place. My husband and I came here to serve, and the Lord kept us here. And I love the women's ministry, so thankful for that. Our Bible study notebook for this year sits right on my desk, right in front of me, and I see it every morning. And I look at that, imitating Jesus. You're kidding. Me? Imitate the perfect Lamb of God? How in the world? And then I talk to myself, and I remember that that is God's calling on us, that we are told over and over in Scripture that we are to be like Jesus, we are to follow Him, we are to love like He loves, and all those things. And I just cannot believe that the Lord would call us to do something that we cannot do by the power of the Holy Spirit. He would not call us to do something that is impossible for us to do if we have the power of the Holy Spirit. For instance, 1 Peter 2.21 says, For you have been called for the purpose, since for this purpose, I'm sorry, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And then Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And in John 13, 34, the Lord Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also may love one another. And then finally, I think maybe the most familiar one is Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ's sake has forgiven you. Each week we are learning more and more and more in this study of of the character and the actions of the Lord Jesus. We're also getting it on Sunday morning in this sermon on Jesus. But I don't think there's any place in God's Word that we see more of His marvelous grace, His love for the unlovely, His reaching out to the lost, and His blessed forgiveness than in the story that we call the prodigal son. I'm so indebted to my dear friend, Jerem Bars, who was one of my seminary professors, for giving me a new understanding of this parable by explaining the culture and the background. We've always focused just on the story itself. And yet, in in all the Bible stories that I read as a child, that I grew up with, and the ones that I used for my children as they were growing up, always portrayed a house on the hill and the father running down the hill to meet his son. And Jerem points out, and and, excuse me, this picture caused me to miss major realities in the story. He reminds us, Jerem reminds us, that Palestine at that time was just a collection of little villages. It was not houses on hills, and it was not isolated people. Everybody lived clustered in small villages, very, very close together, many times their walls touching each other. And so imagine, I grew up in a small town, and everybody knew everybody's business there. Imagine how much more so that would be in these Palestinian villages where everybody can hear everybody's conversation through the wall. And so we have the the little village the closeness of the houses, and absolutely no privacy at all. And then we see the father in a different way. Look at the father in the first scene, knowing this background. The younger son says, basically, Father, I wish that you were dead. But since you're not, I want my inheritance anyway. 
unheard of, absolutely unheard of humiliation for the father by the son. I mean, people would have had no category for this whatsoever. Nobody would do that to insult and disrespect his father that way. And so I can just imagine all the people watching and listening to this and waiting for his response. And it was not what they expected. There was no rebuke. The father was so generous. Not only did he give the younger son his inheritance, he gave both sons. He had an older son and this younger son, as you know, and he gave both of them their inheritance. He was just like our Heavenly Father, who gives more than all that we can ask or think. Then the next scene where we see the Father is in his longing for the Son. You know what the Son did. You know that he ran away and you know he got himself into terrible trouble. And it was the whole situation was awful. But the Father all that time is longing for the Son who had insulted him and ridiculed him in the face of all of his neighbors. In all of his neighbors. Just imagine after all he had done, when there was no love and no concern and embarrassing his father sorely so that he lost respect in the village, and yet the father has been longing for him every day, thinking of him, watching for him, because remember, he saw him coming from afar off. I mean, he had been longing and looking and praying for his son. I was watching the PBS program last night, All Creatures Great and Small, and the lovely lady that keeps house for them has an only son whom she loves and talks about all the time and writes to him and everything. And he never, ever, ever responds. And she expected him to come home for Christmas. And so almost all the program last night, she is watching and watching. And every time there's a knock on the door, she thinks it's going to be him. And I kept thinking of this father. She's longing and waiting, and this father too, just waiting and waiting, longing for his son. And then one day he sees him, far away, he sees him. And we see the father's welcome, which truly is unbelievable after all that his son had done to him. When he saw the son from a distance, he ran. He ran. Jewish men didn't run. They did not run, and they certainly did not bind up their robes and tie them up around their waists so that their legs showed. I mean, that was total public humiliation uh, and humiliating himself for his son. He is also saving his son from the custom of banning that was used for people who had sinned so grossly against their family and against the community. The father had to get to him first to save him from that. And then we know that the father fell on his neck. We see the father's amazing, precious forgiveness. No rebuke again, no criticism. He did not wait for his son to say that he was sorry and repentant. He had already forgiven him long ago. Friends, that is one of the most important things in this story for us to remember and hold in our hearts amazing that the Father's love is what always leads to repentance in this story, but also our, our God and Father. If we ever think for a minute that we repent and then God comes to us and forgives us, we don't understand the Father. We don't understand His love. His forgiveness always precedes our repentance because he is the one calling us to himself. If he waited to love me until I had truly repented, I, I would not know him. 
he had called out to me. And so we, we, see, the, we see then the amazing, another amazing thing is the celebration. The father is beside himself. His son that was lost is found. He has come home. And so he pulls out the stops. He has the biggest party that anybody has ever seen. And in thinking about this, I realized that we need to be people who are known for our celebrations. We have so much to celebrate, so much to celebrate. And I can remember Scott, our pastor, saying soon after he arrived that we should be a church known for our parties, our celebrations, because God and his angels celebrate over one sinner who repents. Remember that God scheduled celebrations into the calendar of his people, even when they were in the wilderness. There were many times set aside to celebration. Do you know that the reason that we worship on Sunday, on the first day of the week, is because it is the day that Jesus rose from the dead? We think that we celebrate the resurrection on Easter. My friends, if we are really celebrating rightly and understand what God has done, every Sunday is Easter. Every single Sunday is Easter. How tragic that we celebrate or we act like we're celebrating that once a year. The celebrating that needs to go on in our lives is daily and constantly. And then this very high point, which is so wonderful, then we see that the second son comes in from the field. And he's mad as a wet hen, as my mama would have said. He did not want his father to forgive his brother. He was angry because he said he had been there the whole time. And he, he did not not want that kind of forgiveness. And now the elder son is humiliating the father because it says the father went out to him. But remember the context. Remember the little village. Remember the thin walls. Remember the fact that there's no way that this son was screaming at his dad and reprimanding him for what he was doing that everyone would not have heard it. And the father put up with him. There is no anger. There is no rebuke. There is just great sadness, and it ends that way. What would we do? Imagine yourself in that scenario, and remember that we are the sons who often turn away from our gracious Jesus when we don't like what's going on in our lives, and we're accusing him. You know, how dare you send these bad things to us? We use him like Santa Claus to get what we want. But this Jesus whom we are to imitate is the one who was humiliated by those he came to save, yet he gave his life on the cross for us to save us from our sins. He longs for us. He prays for us. He runs to us with gracious forgiveness before we even know him. Is this the Jesus who is revealed in my life and in yours? Are we imitating this Jesus who is so loving and so forgiving no matter what people did to him? We see the character of Jesus. uh, I'm sorry, how well we know him and how we see the character of Jesus determines how we imitate him in our lives, regardless of people's treatment of us and how we reveal him to those in our lives, our children, baby Christians, seekers, and all those who need to be encouraged and a reminder of the love of the Savior. Are people seeing that in us? Are we 
truly seeking to imitate Jesus. I received an email last week from a, a young man that I have known since he was a little bitty boy, a long time ago. He grew up in a very strong Christian home, but the emphasis in that home was really on obedience to the law. It was, you know, do this and you're good, and do this and you're good. And I know he was dearly loved, but he did not feel loved. He felt judged all the time. And he never felt like he could live up to the standard that his mom and dad were setting for him, which they told him was God's standard. And in this email, (laughs) Bob wrote saying, with all the love and care that I have had in these last few years by my family, by my church family, in loving me with no expectations, just pouring out love on me, I'm beginning to believe that God might love me. And I was so thrilled, I could hardly contain myself because I know the anguish that this young man had felt for years because he didn't feel worthy of God's love. There is no one of us who is worthy of God's love. Do we present Jesus to our family and to all those in our sphere as one who is always angry, always criticizing, and never satisfied with us? No one has seen God, and they will learn about him by what they see in us. What are they learning about the Savior from our lives and by the way we relate to every situation? Not just to all people, but to, to situations. How have we dealt with COVID? Just think about it. Be honest with yourself. How, have we, how do we deal with hard disappointments? And there have been a lot of them this year, a whole lot of them. And how do we deal with them? How do we deal with job loss and financial ruin? How do we love the most difficult members of our families? And trust me, I think every family has difficult people, including me. How do we deal with chronic illness? That thing that never goes away. Does God really love me? And how do we deal with death? Most of you know that our friend Tim Keller, who has been used by God in so many ways in our country and around the world, has been diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. And I listened to a podcast last week, an interview, where Tim was talking about his death and talking about his faith and talking about the peace that God has given him. His only anxiety, really, is, is leaving Kathy and leaving the children behind. But his absolute peace and acceptance of God's will was a blessing for me to hear reiterated again. And, um, you know, how, how, are we, how do we deal with the fact that we are all dying? People are watching us. They are facing all these things. There's not one thing <clears throat> that, these, that folks we love are not facing. And I ask myself every day, how do people live without the Lord? Will we be the ones who introduce them to the loving, forgiving, gracious Savior who died for us when we were yet in our sins, as Romans 5.8 says, that we might have eternal life with him? We can only do it if we are imitating Jesus, not just studying about him and learning more and more and more, but by his grace, actually imitating him, becoming like him. We had just come home from graduate school, and I was at my mom and dad's, and a dear, dear old friend of mine from high school days 
had moved near them. And she called and said, I'm so excited to see you. May I come over this afternoon? I want you to meet my, my daughter. And so the doorbell rings, and I answer the door. Merla, <clears throat> excuse me, my friend, had the most beautiful big eyes of anybody I'd ever seen. I mean, that was the outstanding feature about Merla. And so I opened the door. I was so glad to see her. Gave her a big hug, and I realized there was something down here. And I looked down, and there was a four-year-old <laughs> looking up at me with the biggest eyes you've ever seen. And she looked at me, and she said, I have my mother's eyes. And I said, yes, darling, you do have your mother's eyes. I would have known you anywhere in the whole wide world because you look just like her. But do people know you and know that you are a Jesus follower when they see how you live and how you respond to all these things? Are we really showing him in everything that we do in our life? It's not easy, but it's not impossible. Or the Lord Jesus would not have called us to that kind of life. There was an old hymn that I loved when I was growing up, and I've thought about it all this week, and it goes like this. I have one deep supreme desire that I may be like Jesus. To this I fervently aspire that I might be like Jesus. I want my heart his throne to be so that a watching world may see his image shining forth in me. I want to be like Jesus. Thank you.